Hello, and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we will be exploring the digital health space and more specifically, wearable technology. We have with us Ellen Sue co-founder and former CEO of Wellinks, and now chief product officer at Convexity Scientific to discuss this topic. Wellinks was a wearable health technology company that focused on building products to improve treatment and outcomes for patients with musculoskeletal conditions. Wellinks was acquired by Convexity in 2019. At Convexity, she leads the product team in delivering digital health solutions that transform respiratory disease management. At the core, she is an operations and product person who focuses on empowering creative teams to deliver user-critical features. Ellen, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We're very excited for you to join us and hear about your experience as a young woman who's ventured deep into entrepreneurship in healthcare, especially in medical device and med tech. Back in 2013, you co-founded a medical technology startup called Wellinks, which got acquired this year, and now you're the chief product officer of Convexity Scientific. In your own words, could you share with us uh, what your company does and what its mission is? Okay. All right. So I would say there's there actually is a common theme between the two of them. So both companies were founded to improve the treatment experience. We look at adherence. So with Wellings, we were looking at adherence with musculoskeletal conditions, particularly with scoliosis and kids who have to wear back braces to prevent surgery for scoliosis. And with convexity, we're actually working with patients who have respiratory illness. So either COPD or asthma, particularly those who have to use nebulizers or you have to take medication to address their symptoms. And so we're looking at, one, addressing adherence to keep people out of the hospital, out of the emergency room. And we're also looking at ways that we can actually improve, both improve adherence and improve quality of life for both groups of patients. Um, And that's so far taken the form of connected devices as well as digital platforms. So both devices that are helping deliver treatment or keep track of treatment, connecting to digital platforms that are taking that data, processing it, and delivering it back to people in a form that actually gives them useful insights and and helps them learn more about their own conditions and how to manage them effectively. That's amazing. What inspired you to engage in this part of healthcare? Yeah, so uh, it was really with the founding of Wellinks, and that was with a friend of mine, actually. So I co-founded it with two other friends. My role there was in product design, and I was really interested in designing products and experiences that would really help people, you know, that would make people's lives better. And so I didn't specifically start out in healthcare. I didn't intend to go into healthcare really at any point, but with my friend, he had had scoliosis when he was younger and he, he became the CTO of Wellinks. And that's actually where we started. So he identified this really distinct problem that kids who have to wear back braces aren't really involved in the treatment process. They're told to wear these braces up to 23 hours a day. And there's really no kind of no feedback involving them back in that process. And so with that, he ended up needing surgery and, and getting a spinal fusion. And he was really looking for a way to help prevent surgeries for other kids because it was it's a very invasive procedure. It's very expensive with a long recovery and lifelong impacts. And so that's how we kind of got into scoliosis. We didn't know what we were going to work on at first, but we were really starting with this drive to help improve the lives of kids with scoliosis. Awesome. 
And Ellen, um, I think from your background, not only were you a student, but you also mentioned that you weren't necessarily a person who studied healthcare or was interested in healthcare, and you stumbled upon this with your friends kind of story. So what were your challenges that you might have faced coming from a background that wasn't focused in healthcare? Yeah, so I was an art major. I had full intention of becoming a fine artist, a painter, kind of going into college. I was choosing between art school and liberal arts college. Ended up going to Yale, which was I you know, looking back, a great decision. The arts program at Yale really challenges you to examine kind of why you're doing art and and what it is that you feel called to do in your life. And you know, they really have you kind of internalized and focus on, you know, what what is the message that you want to say to the world? And, you know, is art the way to do it? And kind of through that experience, and also, I also watched this documentary that had a huge impact on me that was focused around product design. I realized that what I liked to do was actually create things that people could interact with and and actually interact with on a daily basis. And so that kind of led me to product design. And around the same time, I learned about human-centered design. I got involved with the organization Design for America, which teaches design to college students and also by forming you know, projects and projects and, and ways to serve the local community through design thinking. So I got really interested in that and that really spoke to me as a way to help people and through this kind of creative process where you could really learn a lot about different pieces of it. And and to me, it felt like it really aligned with the scientific method as well. I was always interested in both science and art and I kind of, you know, missed the science and the engineering part of it being an art major. Um, And so this was a really fun way and, and a way to actually bring that back in. I met my co-founder through Design for America. He was in the engineering program. And that's another thing I've really appreciated about the kind of human-centered design and design thinking movement. It really brings people from diverse backgrounds into the same room to learn from each other and to create better ideas together. How did you go about comparing adherence to your device as opposed to the I guess, standard of care, the existing braces already in the market, because it seems like your product offered so many more benefits from a psychological point of view and a satisfaction point of view for patients and their parents, as well as the provider. How did you go about measuring that and quantifying that impact you had? Yeah. So we relied really heavily on predicate research, the good work that other people were doing, both on the clinical side and on the technology side. So we were very fortunate. The time period that we were focusing on this, there was a huge study that was in the works and about to be published that was, one, proving that braces were actually effective in managing scoliosis and preventing surgery. That was actually a big question that people had had that was kind of muddying up the waters in terms of what treatment recommendations were people were giving and how people were dealing with scoliosis. But the big issue and part of the reason it was so difficult to actually decide that conclusively was that non-compliance and and non-adherence with the brace was a huge issue and that that was something that they identified. There was another study that we were looking at where they put the monitor in the brace for a bunch of patients. Half of them, they told that they had a monitor in the brace and half of them, they didn't let them know that they had a monitor, but you know, they'd gotten parent consent. And what they found was that, you know, for the patients who knew that they were being monitored, there was a very, very kind of dramatic increase in, in adherence. I think about a 40% increase in number of hours. So 
that was, you know, it makes sense. Um, and that was a sustained increase. And actually more encouraging was that you actually also saw that increase of adherence longer term, as well as increase in patient engagement when clinicians were actually able to follow up with patients directly and discuss their results in between visits. So they could look at that data and they could call up the patient and talk, you know, every two weeks rather than every six months and say, you know, here's your results. Are there any issues? And they could catch problems a lot earlier. And so there were a number of those research studies that we were looking at that actually helped us decide to focus on brace adherence. There were a lot of other things that we were looking at, both scoliosis screening, surgical recovery, physical therapy, but you know that combination of data really drove us to the brace adherence side of things. And then, you know, we actually partnered with one of those researchers. So the the person who was doing that study that showed that patients who knew that they were being monitored had higher adherence. We actually got in contact with them. We told them about the device that we're building. They were so excited that they wanted to do another study with us. And so that was one of the big pieces that we relied on. And, you know, we wanted to make sure that what we were doing was also backed by data. And so that was a big priority for us was finding research studies and, and talking to those researchers. And, you know, they were they were excited to see that their research conclusions were being put into practice. It was easy for us to talk to them. And, and we got a lot of support from doctors and researchers through that. Because we were listening to them, we were citing their research, we were taking their conclusions and putting them into practice. And so they were really excited to help. And that was that was a great tactic for us to also be able to talk to doctors and, and researchers. I'm sure. I think just getting backing for a medical device is, is just so fundamental to rooted in research and also a clinician guided feedback and their own experiences. How did you go about developing those relationships with orthopedic surgeons and researchers, how did you sort of dip your toe in and then finalize a partnership with an institution, formalize Wellinks? Yeah. So that's where actually being a student really came in handy. You know, we actually were able to cold call a lot of folks. We found a basically like an industry list of orthopedic surgeons that treated scoliosis and went down the list and, and called people and left emails. And it really helps. You know, we noticed a distinct difference when we were crafting the email and the message. When we mentioned that we were students and we kind of cited their treatment practice or and we talked about what we were working on, those physicians really wanted wanted to help. You know, when we didn't push the student angle in the early days, at least, we got a lot of people that were like, I don't want to buy anything. You know, we, I'm not interested in sales. And really, really just said, like, we want to understand what issues you're having in the clinic. What do you see that can be improved? And, you know, we want to help fix those problems. I really applaud you for bringing in the key stakeholders into your process of designing the product. Now, can you walk us through the process you went through going from that idea based on your countless hours of research to that first prototype? Yeah, absolutely. So we started off in basically like an engineering accelerator. We had about a 10-week program where we were funded through the summer to you know, work on a technology. And we applied with a pitch that was very much, you know, scoliosis treatment is broken in a lot of different ways and we want to fix it but we don't know how yet. And we'll figure it out over the summer. And luckily, like we knew the director. And so he let us in. But you know, with the contingency, like you actually have to work on something this summer. (laughs) 
So we had a very intentional process. We went through several stages, really following the human-centered design process. So the first two weeks we did research. We actually ended up shadowing a surgeon. We went to brace manufacturers. We talked to researchers. We ended up at a local support group and talked to the patients and the parents there. So it was really a process of just trying to understand what the whole process looked like from all of the different stakeholders. From there, we mapped out specific areas. So we were looking at bracing. We were looking at screening, if we could screen kids earlier, if we could get to helping out with surgery, physical therapy, trying to address some of the emotional aspects of bracing, kind of the social aspects of bracing with, with kids. So we mapped out all of those areas and came up with ideas. And so with, within each area, we did this, how can we improve rates of scoliosis screenings in states that don't have mandated school screenings? Or you know, how can we uh, build confidence for kids that feel self-conscious when they have the brace? Or how can we help kids recover from scoliosis surgery so they don't have as much back pain? Or how can we disseminate information about physical therapy to patients so that they're able to kind of keep their core strength up and, and have better outcomes? So, you know, looking at a lot of those questions, generating ideas. We ended up with this board full of sticky notes with probably at least 100 ideas on it. And from there, we actually started narrowing it down. And we evaluated those on these three circles of desirability, feasibility, and viability. So desirability is, do people want this solution? Is this something that people actually want and will use? Viability, is this a sustainable business? Can this be built into a sustainable solution? And then the third was feasibility, which is this technically possible? Is this something that we can build? That struck out a lot of the surgery focused ones, just because we knew that as kind of undergraduate students, we weren't going to be doing a lot to impact things in the OR. We ended up kind of with two big ideas that we were looking at. One was tracking brace adherence, and the other one was actually doing what we could to help screen kids for scoliosis, because if you can catch it early, you can intervene early, which leads to better outcomes. And for about a week out of that 10 weeks, we were convinced that the best thing for us to do was to buy a van, retrofit it so that we could actually run kind of scoliosis screening stations in there, drive to towns whose schools didn't have mandated school screenings, and actually screen kids because the quality of the screeners was important, the trainer, the training of the screeners was important, and training school nurses is very expensive for schools. So we thought, okay, you know, we'll drive around the country screening kids for scoliosis. And we think that this is going to help actually impact and reduce rates of surgery. And then we forgot about kind of the fourth level of evaluation beyond the desirability, feasibility, and viability was, do we actually want to do this? So that idea was replaced by the developing a monitor that could actually tell how long a patient was wearing it, connect to technology that could then deliver kind of more tailored insights to patients and deliver encouragement, but then also show the doctors how their patients are doing and be able to let them kind of triage the patients that need the most help. So... Yeah, that was kind of our process and how we ended up at that first idea. And, you know, this was about six weeks in. Our advisors in the engineering program were getting a little nervous because we didn't have anything that we had built, just walls full of sticky notes. And all the rest of the teams, you know, they were testing out and they were using the tools. But then 
it came together really, really quickly in the last four weeks. We ended up being able to create this working prototype, actually a couple of iterations. We had a bunch of, of sketches that would show, you know, how it would look on a patient longer term. And that's actually some of the blueprints and the stuff that we built in those early days were what we were building towards long term. Um, and it actually doing that work up front and doing that research really helped us orient and make sure that we were working on the right things. Mm -hmm. I feel like by focusing on the process itself instead of like the end point or the output of those 10 weeks program um, might have actually helped you out. Because if you had your eye on the output and trying to get to something as fast as you could, you actually could have not figured out the actual insights from the older research that you did. I think you actually going to the surgeon, like shadowing them and meeting with the actual patients and their support groups um, and hearing their stories probably was very insightful and led you to the product that you were building. So that was an awesome story to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And we had heard from some of the people about this big research study, and I think it was the largest NIH-funded study in orthopedics. And it was actually stopped early because the early results were so compelling that bracing was effective that they decided the control group needed to be braced as well. And so, you know, it was really, really good evidence for us that what we were working on was the right thing. And it actually ended up getting published in October that same year. And the New York Times had an article on it as well. And one of the great things about that is, you know, that study was published. It made a lot of waves. A lot of people were interested in looking up scoliosis. And by that point, we had a prototype and we were able to kind of get ahead of that news coming out. I think timing is especially key in your case. Do you think everything sort of falling into place led you to choose scoliosis, the literature, the media, and all of that? And were there other indications that you were considering, for example, contractures? Could you tell us a little bit more about your choice to pursue scoliosis? Yeah. So, you know, part of the initial kind of justification when we were looking at scoliosis, well, one, it's, you know, these patients are underserved. The treatment, the way that treatment was handled hadn't been updated in decades at that point. You know, people were still being wrapped up in plaster to do a brace cast. And and so it was really, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. We weren't necessarily focused on it as a business. But when we were looking at kind of the business cases, one of the things that we were looking at was, you know, how much surgery costs and how much you can reduce surgery via preventative measures. When we were doing our early research just to figure out, like, is this something that we should be working on? How big is this problem? What we found is that scoliosis surgeries are actually the number two highest healthcare and hospitalization costs for kids in the U.S. So it's right behind appendicitis. It costs the industry over a billion dollars a year. The surgeries themselves are about $200,000 a piece. And that's, that's not including, you know, recovery time and, and long-term health effects. And then the braces cost, you know, about 1% of that cost. And so it was a no-brainer for us to say, if we can make the braces more effective, if we can even improve or prevent one surgery, that automatically pays for, you know, hundreds of interventions. And, you know, down the line, what we realized, and when we were talking to investors, we we did have to expand the scope. We were targeting reducing the cost for, you know, something that was costing the industry a billion dollars, but the business itself, you know, was was probably several tens or hundreds of millions of dollars as, as a potential business size. So that was actually too small for a lot of investors, but it was a good place to start. So then we actually started looking at what are some of the other ways that we can grow this business? And, and we were kind of in two minds. One was, 
can we expand vertically within scoliosis? Can we look at, um, can we be like a complete treatment management uh, tool for scoliosis where we look at the physical therapy for scoliosis and how we can help deliver insights about that, how we can help with post-surgical recovery, how we can deliver more kind of insights into who needs surgery. So that's one kind of one angle that we could take. And then the other one was looking at orthotics and prosthetics more generally, kind of the musculoskeletal conditions piece of it. So where are people wearing braces and where is it important to know that people are wearing them properly and how long they're wearing them? And so that's a much bigger industry. That was That is by itself kind of like a four to $6 billion industry industry. And it's a fairly manual industry. There wasn't a lot of technology except for within kind of some more of the advanced prosthetics. So we we started looking there just because a lot of our connections were in kind of musculoskeletal. There was a third thought of, you know, we developed the smart strap for the scoliosis braces. And, you know, one of the other ideas was, okay, what else needs a smart strap? We got a lot of random things and it was just like, okay, you know, what are we doing? We're measuring tension and then we're reporting that back to a phone. And so that was kind of a different way of looking at it, but we didn't end up going down that route just because it was, you know, we would have had to build competency in a lot of different and and market knowledge and a lot of different horizontal markets, which was more work to us and less interesting than focusing on musculoskeletal and other areas of scoliosis. So we've really delved deep into the iterative process of design thinking, but I want to take a step back and think more big picture. What was the business model that you were putting forth to investors? And it's really a process of figuring out what are the levers, like what are the things that are important to the people that you're talking to. So, you know, for hospitals, it's saving them time, saving them money, or getting them better survey scores. Those are the three, like, really, really important things for them. And so if we could show that specifically, you know, that was a way in for us. And then with the hospital systems, you know, getting them, incentivizing them to potentially, you know, buy the software. So then that way we could lower the cost and actually increase access. A big thing that we were struggling with was if we go direct to consumer and we have people pay out of pocket that severely limits the people that we're able to reach and you know we ended up only being able to reach people in like dense urban centers with high incomes and the people who really needed it the people who didn't have access to care they wouldn't have access to it and that was something that we really struggled with and so it's really like can we figure out how to offload the cost from the patient directly to the system overall as fast as we could? One quick clarification question. So Wellings is designing the technologies, but do you guys also make braces as well? Or are you just in partnerships with brace manufacturers? Yeah, so we actually didn't want to be a brace manufacturer. We thought that that would take too long. And there's a lot more kind of clinical risk riding on being a brace manufacturer and actually treating patients. We basically created the monitor that would attach onto the brace and then all of the software that would help monitor it. So we were brace agnostic, which was a very... Um, I see. It was a... What's well, this more scalable yes. in general, right, mm-hmm. for other indications and... I think more appealing to investors as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it meant that we could talk to any given brace manufacturer and say like, look, we can boost the power of your brace. And they were looking for that. You know, it took a lot of conversations to get them used to that idea. But towards the end, we were in conversations with a bunch of them about kind of licensing and and providing technology because they knew that they couldn't do it themselves. But it meant that we could talk to any of them and they were, you know, they were interested in, in that. So 
Ellen, uh, sort of shifting gears a little bit, we'd like to discuss uh, your experiences with fundraising and pitching. Could you tell us at a high level how uh, fundraising went for Wellinks? And how did you go about finding investors to pitch to? Yeah. So I would say, you know, fundraising in total, we raised about $1.3 million in investment, as well as $200,000 in kind of grants and in-kind services. So it was a good amount of funding for what we needed. It was mostly from angel investors. So we actually, we didn't end up getting investment from any sort of large venture capitalists. And part of that, I would say, was a function of our market because we had started in the smaller market and we needed to do a better job of kind of combining that messaging. When we were figuring out the messaging for that bigger play and bigger vision of the products for either musculoskeletal treatment overall or kind of doing that vertical and scoliosis, you know, I don't think that necessarily came through to the investors at the point that we needed it to. But overall with the investors, one of the things that we really appreciated being in kind of the Yale environment was that it gave us a chance to test out a lot of that messaging in a safe environment. One of the things is, you know, we're in the state of Connecticut and there's actually a investment fund that's run by the state. It's run like a venture capital fund, but the funds are kind of semi-private and there's some uh, semi-public actually, and, and there's some matching involved. And so that's an organization called Connecticut Innovations. They've got kind of a double bottom line where they want to make money. And so they, you know, they kind of follow the traditional investing theses, but the bigger priority for them is to really revitalize the state. They view it as a way to build up the ecosystem in the state, attract other companies here, and really encourage hiring here. And that is one of their tactics. And you know, I think it's been working out pretty well. I think they do a good job, and a lot of the companies in Connecticut have really benefited from, from CI's guidance and from their funding. So we got big enough where CI was interested. We talked to them. That was our second round of funding. And we were able to kind of take advantage of matching funds where we did some friends and family funding. So we got some investment from some advisors as well. So that was through uh, convertible notes as well. CI came in with a matching grant once we were able to reach a certain threshold. And then we ended up raising just under a million kind of in our third round of fundraising. And we did a lot of things. We applied to a lot of funds, even just blind. Um, We tried to get, you know, we did a lot of networking, went to a lot of events. Anybody we talked to, we would see if we were, you know, appropriate for anybody in their network. So we talked to a lot of people. We also applied to every fund that was within, I think it was 100 or 200 miles of us on Gust, anything that we could drive to in a day. And so I spent probably about an entire day just applying to open calls for investment on Gust. And we ended up getting one response out of that. Um, But that one response turned into the first investment of that round and a lot of other intros. And, you know, the the whole thing is that investors, nobody wants to lead, everybody wants to follow. And so they want someone else to do the work, to validate the company, to vet the information, to do all the diligence, because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of effort. And so, you know, once we got CI in and we got that first investor, then everybody else was like, okay, you know, if they're in, then we'll be in and we're, we're, we want to jump in here. It wasn't quite like Domino's. It still was like pulling teeth to really close those investments. So that round ended up taking about 18 months to really fully close. But that was kind of our second, our second round of investment. Um, and that was really geared towards manufacturing, product development, running the clinical study, um, and really kind of going to market at that point. How did you keep a positive environment amidst all the, I guess, rejection? Oh, yeah. No, it was, 
you just have to not take it personally. A big thing for us was, you know, nobody ever says no to you directly. They usually just say like, you're a little early for us, or you're not quite in the right market for us. And, and, you know, we, we ended up doing really well with more kind of mission focused investors. So investors that were targeted in healthcare or ones that had a priority beyond just, you know, making as much money as possible. And so that really helped. I would say we were actually helped because we got into a lot of more kind of female focused pitches and a lot of those events yeah, I'm like refinery, but even I think 37 Angels and Golden Seeds and, you know, there's a couple of them out there. I mean, one of the things that was a little annoying is that, you know, when we would talk to people, they'd be like, well, have you talked to Golden Seeds or have to talk to, you know, insert the one or two female focused investment funds out there. And, you know, and the answer is like, yes, we would like to be able to compete on an even level, you know, on our own merits and not just because of the founding team. But if that gets us into somewhere a little bit easier then great. And I think at that same time, a lot of people were thinking about that kind of gender gap within venture funding. And so people were willing to take a chance that they wanted better numbers. And we were, I would say we were benefiting that. And that probably got us a second look from some folks that normally wouldn't have. Um, it's still a slog. And part of it is that you, you just have to consider it more of a marathon. And so you have to take the funding that you get, do what you can with it. And it was just coming in bit by bit. So rather than saying like, okay, you know, a big, you know, we'll get a big windfall of funding and we'll do this big project. It was more of like, we'll be getting kind of consistent funding enough to pay the bills, enough to keep the lights on. What can we do with that? You know, those bits of, of funding. I'd like to fast forward to more present times. You're in a unique position where Wellinks was acquired and now you're part of the Convexity team. Where was Wellinks at when the option of being acquired came about? Were you thinking about that at all? Yeah. So to be honest, this was coming at a time where we had a lot of difficulty with manufacturing. And I would say that was one of the things where inexperience really kind of came back to bite us. We just weren't able to manage that process properly. And I would say like one of the other things was we were a small company. And so to any manufacturer, we were the always the lowest priority for them. And that was, you know, we just didn't have any leverage in that process. So yeah, we ended up in this spot where we had to raise either bridge funding or get some other funding to keep going. And we were looking at this kind of with our 12 month projections back in 2018. And so we're trying to see like, what can we do to mitigate this? What can we do to manage this? How can we kind of maximize our chances for success while also, you know, making sure that we're not taking too big of a risk? What we settled on trying to talk to investors, but also trying to work through some sort of strategic partnership or licensing agreement. So um, talking to the partners in the space, the brace companies, the other orthopedic companies, and trying to get something through there. And looking at ways that we could preserve the funding that we did have to keep to keep things running in the background and to make sure that we hit big milestones without putting too much extra work into it. So, you know, that was actually a series of really difficult decisions where we looked at like where do we need to cut? And one of those was actually, you know, how can we how can we go into kind of like a hibernation mode and only put money in things that are able to run without a lot of input. So, we ended up actually powering down a lot of the core functions of the business and focusing on strategic partnerships, 
finishing manufacturing and the clinical study, um, because that was being run by New York Presbyterian without too much uh, of our own kind of operational requirements. I stayed on kind of unpaid as well. So we all we all kind of stopped taking salary and essentially did side gigs for a year to make our bills while we tried to find kind of those strategic partnerships. So we ended up talking to basically like all of the brace manufacturers, all of the major kind of OMP companies out there, having those conversations and, you know, buying time to kind of let those conversations develop. So we did that kind of in the process of that, we were able to start the clinical study, we were able to finish manufacturing, and we were able to actually get our first patent granted. And so those big things were able to kind of move those conversations forward. Kind of at the same time, uh, that's actually when I started chatting with the folks at Convex. Basically, their mission was at that point, they were a company that had one product, which was a a portable nebulizer. And they were looking to build out this whole digital platform, add connectivity, add Bluetooth, have this whole digital platform where you could monitor patients and doctors could see how all their patients were doing. A lot of that same conversation that we were having but in respiratory. And so they were looking for a team that could do that because they knew that they didn't have the expertise, but they had the funding. And we had this product and this platform that was basically built out and functioning, but we didn't have the funding to, to move it forward. So we got to talking in October and, you know, I really liked the head of the company and the rest of the team um, when I was meeting them. We talked about, you know, potentially moving together, kind of moving to combine those two companies and, you know, and, and it was some of the discussion was around like, how do we actually manage the scoliosis piece of it? And, you know, one of the things that we were figuring out there was, you know, there's still interest from the brace companies, but all of them again, are so were were too small to really support the product product properly or to make a good, uh, a good offer right off the bat. And so what we could do is actually keep the scoliosis side of things um, and license that out to the brace companies. And so we would actually keep that option open. We're licensing out to the brace companies. And with software platforms, you know, you really only need to develop it once and you can essentially either clone it or if the features are largely the same, you can kind of support two different conditions using the same platform. And so it was a way to make the development process more efficient for the brace companies and for scoliosis while still being able to kind of go forward with product development on the respiratory side. We really needed to make this work as soon as we could um, because they really wanted to get started on kind of integrating the platform with their respiratory side of things. And at that point, I was, I was just tired. Like I was tired of having those conversations with the brace companies that didn't go anywhere. And so I really wanted to get it done also by the end of the year because some of our investors, they wanted to cancel investment and do a little bit of a, of a tax write-off. And so with the acquisition, you know, it was actually a partial merger. Um, and so we actually were able to get stock in Convexity. So they they paid some in cash and then some of it was, uh, was stock. And so, you know, that kept actually some of our investors involved. Some of them wanted to just cancel it and take a tax write-off. And so that means that the paperwork needed to be done and signed by December 31st. And so we really rushed to get that through. At one point I was in... Texas kind of driving like on a road trip the day after Christmas and having to like pull over to a gas station that had like one bar of cell service. So I could take a call from my lawyer about like paperwork. And yeah, it was actually like hiking with my family and had to, you know, had to like find a spot where I could take a call and, and to finish up that paperwork. Really ridiculous situation. So glad that we stuck to that timeline. The timing 
looking at it retrospectively and everything that's gone on this year, I'm really glad that we insisted on getting it done. So yeah, so that was the process. It was definitely an adventure, but you know, both sides were really motivated to make it happen. So I think it within about two to three months, we had gotten all the stuff signed and inked. You're working on this really exciting space of you know, digital health, connected devices. And I think it's more important than ever right now, um, this space, given the current climate of COVID-19. Um, all the care is being, really being pushed out into the home and remote from the offices. So I wanted to hear your thought, and you've been working on this for years before this COVID-19 hit. So do you now see that looking into this year and also a few years out, um, what the trends might be in this digital health and connected devices field. There's a lot of people in, in a very complicated system that stand to benefit from more efficiency in the system and, and centralized resources. So for us, it's been an issue of, you know, how do we identify those people? Remote monitoring and telemedicine, you know, that's something that we've we had been talking about even January, February. That conversation has basically become the only conversation. That is how can we do this? What can we build that helps us manage this? How can we deliver care to people in their homes? And I think, you know, with COVID happening, it's something that the healthcare system was going towards, I would say, you know, there you saw increasing acceptance of those services, increasing utilization, and then it suddenly became required. We had to do this. There was no kind of, there was no other way to get care. And so it's really moved up that timeline, I would say probably by about three years at least. So something that you would say, okay, this might be what healthcare looks like in five years, like the regulatory hurdles, the payment hurdles, the technology hurdles, like those are being cleared one after another to the point where, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of these things and a lot of these transformations start to happen within the next two to three years. Remote patient monitoring is going to be huge. And, and I would say like a bigger innovation is from the doctor side. Like how do we incentivize doctors to monitor patients remotely? So much of the stuff that they do in the clinic now, you know, what can you do actually at home and how can you increase those touch points with patients while also decreasing the amount of time that you have to spend, for example, taking notes or filing paperwork or figuring out billing? So that's something that we're looking at. They came out with some new remote patient monitoring codes last year that doctors could bill for in terms of you know the time that they were spending monitoring patients. I think those codes are going to revamp. And, and I think those the insurance companies are going to look and say, like, we need to actually make this a priority to figure out because we want more people to do this because we look at this and say this is a more effective way to deliver care and also make sure people aren't falling through the gaps. I agree. I think it's sort of a double-edged sword because you can collect so much data, for instance, like blood pressure monitoring, but if it doesn't really change management, it could really become a burden to the provider and the patient who is sort of bogged down by this constant recording of information. But on the other hand, if it actually changes management or improves patient experience or satisfaction, I think it's an asset to healthcare. Absolutely. I had a interview with a doctor, a pulmonologist last week, just to start figuring out our clinician interface. And he very clearly told us, like, if you have a dashboard with all of my patients on it, like, I will not log in to check it. I do not have the time to be checking this third party system. And, and he has specifically said, like, send me a PDF report with a graph with the top like five things that I need to know, don't send me all the data. I don't want to look at it. And and he's basically like, this data isn't 
useful to me. I would rather spend more time talking to the patients and hearing about what's fitting their lifestyle and, and making it fit into their lives more and forming that human connection. And so, you know, a big charge for us is to say, we're collecting a lot of data, but our benefit to the doctor isn't data. Our benefit is how can we be on top of, you know, the latest medical research, the latest clinical research and directing some of that to deliver actually useful insights to people. And I think that's, that's more of what companies are doing. Um, more of them are realizing that big data is actually not a draw. Big data is not interesting now to doctors or to health insurance companies. It's really what you do with that data and how that actually impacts care and outcomes. Along those lines, are there companies in the space that you find interesting and are leading the way in this evolution of big data? Yeah, absolutely. So particularly within the respiratory space, I would say Propeller and ResMed are, are some of the biggest players there. And outside of the respiratory, I would say Livongo is is one of the best in class in terms of digital programs. They focus on diabetes, whereas Propeller focuses on asthma and COPD management, particularly focusing on inhalers. One of the things that they've done is they focus really, really heavily in the early days on clinical research and partnerships. So their big charge was we first need to prove to people that remote patient monitoring, that digital kind of treatment management, that having those data and delivering those insights to the patients is actually leading to better clinical outcomes and better patients satisfaction. The other thing that they've done really well is that they've done actually partnerships with pharmaceutical companies. So they figured out, you know, if we are tracking adherence to medications, who really cares about how patients are using their medications? Well, you know, the manufacturers of the medications really want to know how are patients using it. And that's actually been the basis of a lot of tech company partnerships. The pharmaceutical companies, they're huge. They're kind of these behemoths. They don't have a way to talk directly to patients, really. I mean, beyond just putting ads on TV in the US. And so they are kind of starved for patient feedback and, and it's really hard. They have to pay a ton of money to run clinical studies. So that's a model that we've seen more and more often. You know, it's something that we're discussing internally as well. It's an interesting way that the market is going. Sort of rounding out the interview, Ellen, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. As a female entrepreneur in healthcare, what would your advice be for women who are interested in building their own healthcare companies moving forward? Yeah, especially for those who are kind of starting this out of school, surround yourself with mentors, surround yourself with people that are cheering for you that have kind of that experience that are advising you not just for your business, but also personally for yourself. I've really, really benefited from friends of mine that are founders that are probably two to five years ahead of me. And they help me, you know, figure out like what's coming down the line. What do I need to start anticipating? Did they go through some of the situations that we're going through? You know, some of the growing pains, the issues with funding, a lot of those we ended up talking through. And, you know, a lot of them have helped me see like, what can I be doing more? You know, it's hard to sometimes figure out like, you feel like you're working all the time, but are you spending your time effectively? And, you know, just talking through that with people is really, really helpful. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.